Hi, and thanks for listening to today's episode of the Talking Hoops podcast. I'm your host, Coach John Cook, and I am tickled to death today to have as my guest, Clay Tucker. Uh, for those of you who are Northwest Ohio natives, you'll probably remember Clay. Uh, he's on the podcast because I've been fortunate enough to call him a friend for a long, long time. But Clay played high school basketball at Perry High School in Lima, Ohio. Uh, and then very late after his graduation, he went on to a college career four years uh, after a redshirt year at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where he played for Bo Ryan and Bruce Pearl during his four years before beginning a professional career that spanned more than 15 years, including uh, professional leagues here in the United States, but essentially the bulk of his career was spent overseas where he was remarkably successful uh, and played into his mid-30s and now is going to be taking on a new role as a graduate assistant coach under Bruce Pearl at the University of Auburn. Uh, and I can't wait to, to to get into our conversation. Hope you enjoyed my visit today with Clay Tucker. Excited to have as my guest today on the podcast uh, a guy that, honestly, Clay, I can't. I don't believe I'm going to say this, but I've, I've known you for 25 years, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, and, and, and when I read in print that you were 40, I, I thought that can't be possible. Like he's a kid. He can't he can't be 40. But, um, I, you know, when we met, I, I, I put met in quotes. I, I will never forget this. I'll, I'll lead off with this. I was a first time head coach first year at Ada High School in 1995-96. And so we're not very good. Like we're struggling. We're 0-4, 0-5, whatever we are. And you guys were playing a lot of young kids. So, like, 95, 96 would have been your sophomore year, probably? Yep, would have been my sophomore year. And so I'm, I'm watching you guys and scouting and getting ready, and I'm thinking to myself, they're young. Uh, we're not young, but we're inexperienced. They're probably a little more athletic than us, but it's going to be on our floor. And I literally thought to myself, Co- Coach Jarvis, you know, mostly plays half quarter at a time, so hopefully we'll be able to stay in the game. And I thought – I might get my first win. So I, I kind of invited my college coaches, Coach Campoli and Coach Coleman. I said, if you guys get a chance to come to the game tonight, I'd love to have you there. And and, and I'm thinking, got a chance to get a win. And you guys came in there. And number one, Coach Jarvis outcoached me something terrible that night. Number two, uh, that, that sophomore kid that nobody knew a lot about <laughs> really made life miserable for us that night. And, and we, we didn't get that win. But over that next three years of coaching against you as a high school player and, and the respect that you always showed our kids in our program was immensely appreciated. And, and I'm not real sure it didn't happen with a lot of guys. But for some reason, after that was done, like you and I just always kind of we always kind of got along, had a connection. And I appreciate having had your friendship for the last 25 years. No, it's just it's always been a, it's always been a pleasure whenever whenever me and you bump into each other whether it was on the court or off the court we always had this, this certain energy and certain vibe that, that drew us to one another and you know you can feel that uh, you can feel that with certain people and it was just something about you man it just it's our vibe and our energy just drew us near one another and we you know we always spoke or reached out to one another via social media at some point in time throughout the years. And, and, and I, I just, like I said, I, I, your journey fascinates me. If you haven't listened to any of the podcast episodes, they've basically become storytelling times where we, we go through people's journeys in basketball. And, and a lot of our, our journeys start in Northwest Ohio because that's where I'm from. But some of the guys on the podcast have nothing to do with Northwest Ohio. I'm, I'm almost certain that I could do this podcast for another, another number of years and I won't have 
another guest on the podcast that can talk about the, the, the journey literally and physically that you've made through basketball. Uh, but it started in Lima. So I'd like to talk a little bit about your time growing up uh, in the Lima area and, and really about attending Perry High School. Um, it's it's not, you know, it's not that big of a school and there are other options in Lima. What was it about your time in Lima and ultimately what led you to end up at Perry? Uh, well, I grew up on the south end of Lima. Um, my, my mother and my stepfather, uh, we, uh, we, we moved when I was about six years old. On, on, we stayed on the south end of Lima, and we, we moved to a, a different street, and we moved to Cedar Street. And Cedar Street was one street away from being Lima City Schools District, where I would have stayed in the, in the city school system. And Cedar just happened to be Perry School District. <laughs> and I went to school, and uh, you know, the first day of school, uh, I think it was second, first or second grade, or first grade it was, and. Uh, you know, you got to write your name, your address on a piece of paper and hand it in to the teacher. Well, I handed mine in to the teacher, and I got called into the office, and they told me I was uh, not in the city school district anymore, so I had to switch schools and go to Perry. That's how I ended up at Perry. <laughs> I, and, uh, I, I knew there was something unique about it. I just didn't know all the details. <laughs> yeah, that's how I ended up at Perry. We had no clue Cedar Street was Perry School District. So when, when you – when you end up at school at Perry, um, it's it, it, by comparison, if you'd have been in the Lima City school system, you would have been funneling into Lima Senior and and even people who aren't from Northwest Ohio are going to have some familiarity with Lima basketball. I mean, we, 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 we've had Mr. Basketball and Greg Simpson, Mr. Basketball and Aaron Hutchins, Mr. Basketball, Jamar Butler. Uh, the, the city of Lima is pretty well known and, and Lima Senior, obviously a very large school system. When you look back on your time, especially as a youngster, do you feel like being in a smaller school system was better for you as a person? Um, looking back, I, I, I really can't say that it that it that it had that much of a, an effect on me. You know, being in a smaller school system, but what it did do was 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 teach me how to teach me how to learn teach me how to learn better. You know, the classroom was much smaller, so I had more. Uh, I had Less distractions as I would have if I probably would have stayed at a at a, at a bigger school. Because growing up on the south end, I probably would have attended South Junior High, and then, like you said, I would have funneled my way into Lima Senior, which you know those graduating classes over there, five, six, seven hundred kids at a time. Back then, Perry, we only had fifty-seven in the class of '98. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and when you when you entered uh, junior high and into high school. Um, I, I mean, I, I say this from a, a, a little bit of a biased position, but you, you played for Mark Jarvis at Perry, and, and, and there's not a guy that I competed with as a high school coach that I have more respect for in terms of his uh, treatment of his players and, and the way he operates a program and, and the integrity with which he, he, he approached the game. I, I just I have great respect for Coach Jarvis, but um, there, there's a couple different avenues I want to look at in your experience with Coach Jarvis, but talk about when you had your first interaction with him and what it was like kind of coming up under his program as a player. Uh, coming up under Coach Jarvis, I think it was uh, my sophomore year when uh, when Coach uh, Clefford left Perry. Uh, you know, Coach Clefford was a, a player's coach. You know, he, his, style of, his style of play was more of the up-tempo, uh, get-it-out-and-go um, style of offense. And with Coach Jarvis coming in, it was more of a controlled offense. You know, run when you can, but if we don't, if we don't have the, the numbers to run, we're gonna we're gonna set up a you know half court offense. And Coach Jarvis coming in, he he held you accountable, 
and me being a sophomore and I was being held accountable as a, as a, as a starter on the varsity, you know, I, I felt at times that he was picking on me. You know, I, I, I was, he was, he was just, but all he was doing was holding me accountable for my actions, my mistakes. And he, he was hard and, uh, you know, it, it helped me grow up faster than, uh, than I probably had planned to on the, on the varsity level. And it, it got to the point to where, like, I actually thought he was really picking on me. So we had a, a, a little meeting with my mom, my dad, and, uh, and Coach Jarvis. And I just, you know, put it out there so that he was picking on me. And he said, no, I believe in you. You probably don't believe in yourself the way I believe in you. So I'm pushing you to do the things that I can see that I know you can do. And after that, you know, I learned. Mark, Mark taught me how to come off of screens, how to use the screens. And that's something to this day that I still use to my advantage because, not a lot of people can read screens. Not a lot of people know what a curl. Not a lot of people know what a fade. Not a lot of people know, you know, the to push off, fade, catch one dribble, pull ups. Coach Garvis pretty much taught me how to come off of pretty much taught me how to come off of screens, and I still use that to this day. He he does a, a remarkable job, or did when he was coaching, and I and he's done remarkably well for himself as a businessman. But I I just don't like when good guys aren't in coaching, and he did such a tremendous job of of breaking down that. I mean, he was more of a defensive-minded guy, and, and he did play very uh, half-court at a time for the most part. But offensively, he did such a tremendous job of breaking down that that one side of the floor. We've got a pin down here. We've got – now you've got your options. You've got a straight cut, curl cut, fade cut. And, and, and he basically made guys master those things on, on a side of the floor, then another side of the floor. And, and I, I thought he taught the game remarkably well. But what I also thought was, particularly your, your junior year, um, when we played over at your place, I mean, we had a pretty nice team and, and we knew we were going to have a, a really difficult time playing you guys. But I, I'd just be curious on, on your feeling about this because I know he was a great coach, but style sometimes can, can, can hinder you. I, I always laugh about the number of people that are ahead of you on the career scoring list at Perry. And I think if you'd have played for Matt Tabler, <laughs> you, you, you probably would have put that number out there a ways. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, playing, 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 playing Coach Darvis' style of uh, style of play, like you said, he was a he was a mastermind on defense. But uh, he really taught the game in detail. Um, a lot of coaches just teach the game. He he literally breaks it down drill by drill. Like you said, mastering the coming off the of screens was just something that I, you know, back then I'm thinking like, man, I'm not going to use this after high school basketball. And Lord behold, man, that's how I, that's how I made my living in Europe. Mastering, mastering is coming off of screens and moving without the ball at a young at a young age. And 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 I I I've I've always wanted to kind of hear your take on that just because, um, like I said, I had remarkable respect for for the job that Coach Jarvis did, but also knew that that you know you you had a game and you had some abilities that would have maybe lent themselves to a different style of play, but. You spent three years there, and 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 I don't like to be the guy that brings up bad memories, but I always, uh, I was always struck by the, uh, the rarity of, you know, you ended your senior year on maybe one of the worst nights you could have had in your career, and you're going into your post high school time, expecting and hoping to play college basketball, and I'm not sure a lot of people are are that familiar with with your journey because it's, it's pretty typical for a senior that's, that's got ability to play in college to have that kind of decided uh, by the time their season ends. 
as a senior and oftentimes well in advance of that. But your, your, your journey didn't work out that way. Talk about your end of high school and, and how it was you got started uh, in the process of trying to get to college and play. My last game of my high school career, I think it was against uh, Delphus. St. John's. St. John's it was at the field, at Elida Field House, I think it was. I went to Elida, no. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, at the Field House. Elida Field House. And uh, I think me, that game right there catapulted me to to the player that I became later on in life. Uh, I missed layups. I think I even missed a dunk that game. I missed free throws. I missed wide open threes. I was 0 for 11 or 0 for 12 from the field, if I can remember. And we lost that game, I think, by... 20 it was yeah and earlier that year at i think we were at uh i can't remember the name of the college we were at team camp and we beat Delta st john's at team camp and dayton jefferson who i think went to win went on to win state that year in 98 i think we beat both of those teams at team camp by 15 or 20. <laughs> and, and we ended up losing to Delta st john's i think i was 0 for 11 over 12 no points and, uh, you know, I just felt I let my team down because me being a player that I was, I was the star player of the team and, and not contributing on the offensive end, uh, which I did on a, on a, on a nightly basis. Uh, you know, I just felt I let the team down and, uh, that just, that just added fuel to the fire. The more I, the more and more I got to working out over the summer, preparing myself for college. How, how was the, what was it like for you from a, a mental standpoint when you get to the end of that senior year and you don't have any offers uh was there thoughts of of trying to play at a, at a smaller school that didn't offer scholarships was there thought of trying to maybe pursue the junior college route what what was your thought process when you reached that march april time period and you don't have any offers well the thought the thought process is always you know is is, is for one never to give up for two you have to you have to take what's available for you you know there's nothing wrong with going to smaller schools uh, there's nothing wrong with going to junior colleges, you know, any, you know, everybody has this persona that the division one is, is, is either go there or bust. And, and it's not true. And it's not true because I can give you a, plenty of examples of guys that went to junior colleges that went to division three schools that went to division two schools that I played against, you know, and, and, in Europe, and I know there's some guys that's in the NBA that I've played against that went to smaller schools. So for the for the kids that's coming up now, there's 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 no such thing as a hidden gem. A college coach, an NBA scout, they're everywhere. So no matter what division you're in, no matter how small your school is, you will always be seen because of the way the world works now, which is you know everything is basically social media. And it's interesting to me, Clay, because, it, you, know, I, you know, I've heard and, and follow uh, Quincy on social media and he talks a lot about his, his the guys in his AAU program and, and, and encouraging people quit ignoring good offers or good opportunities. If, if Division three is a great opportunity and you don't have a Division two or Division one offer, be a Division three player. If Division two is making offers and you think you have to have Division one, don't don't turn down a good offer or a good opportunity. And. I've always appreciated that approach and that that belief, um, and because there is really good basketball to be played. But in, in your position, um, at the time that you were coming out of high school, it wasn't it wasn't quite as much. There wasn't quite as much availability of, of video and as many opportunities to be seen. So when you're when you're trying to find your way into a college program, how did you go about 
trying to get that accomplished when it was April, May, whatever uh, of your senior year, you're getting, you're facing graduation and still seeking out that opportunity. How did you go about it? Um, off the radar, radar ran uh, team Lima's uh, AAU program around the city of Lima. Uh, it was called ATAP Team Lima. Once you guys uh, turned it into, once you guys turned it into C2K now, but um, he took, there was this uh, top twenty-five, was top twenty-five or top fifty high school players that hadn't signed yet, and a junior college uh, camp that was combined together out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, Radar drove me, myself, and Lewis Shine out to Tulsa, Oklahoma from Lima, Ohio, on his own time, on his own dime. And we, we competed against, you know, some of the top high school players that hadn't signed yet in, a, in America and the, some of the top junior college players that were looking to get to Division Two or Division One schools. And uh, I performed. I performed at a at a high level out there. Uh, and uh, Kirk Earlywine was the assistant coach at Milwaukee at the time. And uh, he re- he saw me play two games. And uh, him and Radar exchanged information. And before we could make it back to Ohio, he had called twice to to get me to come to Milwaukee on a on a visit. And that was in. I think that was in June. I think it was Coach Cook. So I think that was in June, which is really late if you hadn't signed at a at a university yet. Super late, yeah, absolutely. Because I, I honestly, Clay, I remember getting to the end of of, of ninety eight, and, and I was leaving Ada at that time as the coach. I was going to stay and teach, but I had decided to go to Bluffton University to be an assistant. And I can remember t- telling Guy Neal when I got to Bluffton for for early on, I kept thinking, Hey, I don't know what the deal is, but it's like June, and Clay Tucker still isn't playing anywhere yet. <laughs> I said we need to at least make a call. <laughs> it was it was it was it was a little it was a little I think I ended up I think I finally ended up taking a visit up there in Milwaukee. I think it was first week, second week of July. And when I did when I did go up there and uh, take a visit of the campus and whatnot and toward the city of Milwaukee, uh, I think I finally signed second week of July and I had to return for school like the third week of August. Wow. Crazy. You you mentioned your uncle was a big part of that radar. Uh, Greg Williamson, again, Northwest Ohio folks will know him. And you mentioned the different uh, variations of the AAU program around Lima. You know, and radar won't remember much about me, but when I was a student assistant at ONU, my first two years, we had a JV program at Northern. And a lot of times Division three schools didn't have enough guys to have JV teams. And so probably two or three times during the year, we would play um, at the time what would have been called industrial league teams. We would have, we would play adult teams, the guys that played on a on a Monday night or a Sunday night league uh, in a certain city. And, God, I can remember Radar coming in and playing against our JVs. And Coach Campoli used to have a saying. He'd say, fellas, when you're good, you're good for a long time. <laughs> and he said <laughs> – when you can score, you can score for even longer. <laughs> he would make shot after shot after shot against our guys. And uh, it was always funny to me because I, I knew of him as a youngster, but I didn't know him well. And then I didn't really meet him during that time. But it, it you talked about wanting when we were before we started recording, wanting to give back to the game a little bit. And, and uh, I think Radar has done a remarkable job of giving back to both the game and to young people in, in a way that doesn't get enough credit. Oh yeah, you know, radar radar has given radar has first of all we have to take our hats off to his wife for putting up with the stuff radar has done over the years as far as taking 
taking care of other kids, taking kids on trips to uh, for AEU, paying their way, you know, working hard seven days a week sometimes just so the team can could have enough players to go play AAU tournaments. So Radar and his wife has done a tremendous job in that aspect as far as giving back to the community and and, and, and things like that. Like Radar has he, he allows kids to stay at the house, you know, if they're having trouble at home with the parents or whatnot and He's just an all-around great guy. There's nothing bad I can say about this man. Well, and, and I wanted you to have the chance to say that. I wanted to make sure I said it. And like I said, I don't know Greg well, but the people around Lima certainly do. And in the surrounding Northwest Ohio area, they may not. And I just think it, it deserves to be recognized. And, and obviously what he did for you was huge because when you take the opportunity then to take that visit and then ultimately sign on at UW-Milwaukee, Again, most of our listeners will know, some may not. The head coach at UWM at that time was? When I signed, when I signed at, uh, at Milwaukee, Rick Cobb was, was, the, was the head coach there, and he got let go after, the, after my first year, which was 98, 99 season. I, I, I set out in red shirt. He got let go, and uh, we brought in Bo Ryan, who was uh, coached me for two years and then went on to coach at uh, Wisconsin. Well, what, 19, 20 years, maybe? Yeah, yeah. A couple of things I want to talk to you about with that. One, we'll get into Coach Ryan because I really want to. But what I'd like to talk to you about, and I don't think often gets enough credit either, enough realization for, for how good it can be for young men. Talk about your red shirt year, Clay, and what that was like. I'm, I was like any other freshman, incoming freshman. I, I, I was I was not trying to listen to it. I was opposed to it. There was nothing you could do to convince me that I was that I should be sitting out my my freshman years of, of, of eligibility. But coach, there's there's one thing I can tell you. That was probably the best move I could have made my entire career. Uh, I went in of six two one seventy seven. At uh at physicals my first my first day on campus I'll never forget that and um I was point guard I got recruited as a combo as a point guard shooting guard and uh man I was just so much weaker than the, than the other guys like it was the, the the juniors just punished me whenever they wanted to took me to the paint there was nothing I could do took me off the dribble there was nothing I could do and you know got to talking to them and. You know, they, they really opened my eyes up to, hey, there's nothing wrong with Redshirt. You get it. You still have four years of eligibility. You still practice with us. You, you know, you lift them with us. Everything is the same. Nothing changes. It's just you, you'll get a year of experience without playing. And <clears throat> long story short, I go back my sophomore year, physicals. I'm six four and three quarters, 210 pounds. <laughs> And they couldn't believe it. The people, the doctors couldn't believe it. They, they thought they thought it was a joke that I grew two and a half inches and gained thirty something pounds in one year. And and I I think obviously at the college level those types of things I, I've said this before. What's the difference between a really good Division three player and, and a solid Division one player? It's usually about two two and a half inches. It's it's usually about fifteen to twenty pounds. It's usually about a half step of quickness or a little bit of elevation. I mean, it's not that much different in terms of raw numbers, but the difference that it makes is hard to put a put to put a value on. 
Uh, yeah, it's definitely hard to put a value on. Uh, you know, my my first time going in the weight room at Perry, I was I was so sore the next day. Coach Cook, I didn't even go to school. And I, I, I vowed myself that I would never go back in the weight room if I had to. <laughs> Well, I, I'm I'm quite certain that uh, the weight room became a fairly regular part of your life because I don't think too many people played 15 years of professional basketball without the weight room being relatively important. Oh uh, yeah, weight room weight room was, was the most important thing. Yeah, was the most important thing as I, as I got older. You know, you, 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 your body is a temple. You know, you have to you have to whatever you put in your body, that's what you get out of it. And uh, I had I was on a very strict diet up there. I was uh, four days a week weights Monday, Tuesday, off Wednesday, lift Thursday, Friday, and it was just and I had to eat like what was it? I think it was like four thousand, four thousand calories a meal. Wow. Yeah, so it was it was it was crazy, but hey, it worked, and uh, rest is history. Well, let's uh, let's take a quick second and and talk about your experience playing for Bo Ryan. I think there probably is some similarity uh, between the way that you were coached in high school and the way that you were coached by Coach Ryan at UWM. Some similarity. Obviously, college is a different ball game, but talk a little bit about what it was like playing in in Coach Ryan's program and how it benefited you. Like you said, similarity. Coach Jarvis and Coach Ryan was hard-nosed, straightforward. Well, there was no beating around the bus. Everything was straight, straight to the straight, straightforward. And uh, my coach Ryan's first day with us was conditioning drills, and I caught a cramp and dropped to the track, dropped to the floor. We we're on the track, and he looked at me. He said, "Son, are you injured or are you hurt?" And I looked at him like, basically gave him the signal, like, what, what, like, "What's the difference?" And he <laughs> said, "If you're injured, go downstairs to the trainer. If you hurt, get up and finish this workout." <laughs> But it was the same, same coaching style, same demeanor. And, like, Coach Jarvis really prepared me for, for Coach Ryan. That's outstanding. And, and, and I, I, you know, I, I look at Coach Ryan's career, obviously. It's, it, you can't question his success. Um, and, and he did it in a little bit of a unique way, particularly if you compare it to the game today. Um, he was pretty patterned offensively, uh, controlled the tempo for the most part. Uh, I think probably a little earlier than than some guys. He he, he put a premium on uh, skilled size. I, that, at least that's what I always liked about the swing offense. It it required guys to be able to be inside and outside capable players. But because of that, then the, the skilled size was a big factor. Where, where was the program when Coach Ryan took over, and where was it when he left? Uh, in your estimation about the quality of the program and how, and, and how things were. In terms of operationally, and, and 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 were you poised for the kind of success that you hope to have? Yeah, when when Coach Ryan got there, the program was wasn't wasn't doing what the what the what the city wanted, what the what the university wanted, and what the players wanted. And when Coach Ryan came in, we had a uh, we had a group of guys that were going out that were seniors, and you know they they we they didn't go out the way that they wanted. So I think we finished. I think we finished two games, three games, maybe under 500. There, uh, those guys, the senior year, which would have been my first year, the year I registered. And under Coach Ryan, he came in, uh, implemented the swing offense. Uh, it was so detailed, John, that it was it was it was unreal. Like the guy broke the game down in ways where 
he would be like, man, who who has this much time on their hands to sit down and break <laughs> games down? Like he had the percentages of like he like you you would just say, man, where do you find this time? At? And he would just literally sit there and watch film all day, break down percentages, makes misses, and you just be like, who does this? But one of his things was point guards can't play post defense, so we practice posting up our point guards. And lo, lo and behold, the swing offense, the first guy coming through off the off the back screen was the point guard, and we we had to throw it in. And we had point guards that could post up, and once our guards got you on the backs, it was it was a basket. We practice uh, we practice jump hooks, we practice uh, the mic and drill daily, reverse pivots, front pivots. Like he taught me some footwork that I still use to this day on the younger generation. They can't figure it out to to, to save their lives of how I'm creating space and getting my shot off. Uh, I, I and I always again I I just love the coach Ryan as a teacher I never met him as a man don't know him as a person but I always loved uh, the way that he taught his instructional videos were were, were very detailed and obviously watching his teams play uh, you you could see that the teaching was a big part of it um, so you and I talked a little bit before we started recording when you get to the end of your what would, would have been your third year on campus but your second year as a player. Um, I, I got to believe you personally were, were ready to make a, a sizable leap as a player. You're in a program now for the, the for the really the third year, uh, the second year under Coach Ryan, um, and then there's a change. Talk a little bit about what it was like experiencing the coaching change when it happened uh, in terms of on the calendar and where you were in your process of getting ready for that next year. And uh, just talk talk us through that change, if you would. Well. Going through the first coaching change helped me. Helped me and a, uh, my teammate uh, Ronnie Jones. We were, we were the only two freshmen that came in that in the in the class '98 that year. So with us going through one coaching change already, it, uh, it, it helped us get get through it. It helped the transition to Coach Pearl uh, a lot, a lot, a lot more, and a lot easier. And and that and us going through it with the Coach Ryan and uh, Rick Cobb situation, you know, it, it helped us bring the guys that were coming in. Uh, alone easier, you know, because we had been through it already. So we told them what to what to look out for and how to handle certain situations. Um, Coach Ryan, when he when he did take us out of Wisconsin, he made a promise to our athletic director Bud Haiti that he would not take me to Wisconsin with him because that thought actually crossed my mind to transfer up to Wisconsin. I probably would have caught so much backlash and. And hate mail from from leaving one state school and going to another one, but uh, staying at Milwaukee was probably the, the the best thing that I could have did at that time. Uh, Coach Pearl came in, uh, took the took the program to the heights unimaginable at that time. Um, his style of play was very very different from Coach Ryan's style of play, and it just it, it catapulted. It catapulted our careers into into. We had like three or four guys, maybe five guys, go to Europe to play. Guys played in NBA summer leagues. I think we end up having five five thousand point scores under under when I was there. Wow. Under 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 Coach Pearl, and it was just like he he was a he was a player's coach. 
and still to this day, he still is a players coach. So. Well, I, I told you before we started recording, I'll, I'll never forget it because the, the summer between your sophomore year of eligibility and your junior year of eligibility, that, that transition year, you, you, you were over at Northern getting ready to play some pickup ball after camp had ended, and I was helping with the camp. So camp's over, and they, they normally our, – our college guys would play, and some local guys would come. Greg, Greg came a couple times, and you, you, you were in there that night. So right before camp wrapped up, I walked down and said, how you doing? And you said you were good. And I said, uh, you ready to play for Coach Pearl? And you said, all I know is we open at Wisconsin. We're going to kick Coach Ryan's ass. <laughs> we had some battles. Had some battles uh, with that, that Milwaukee and Wisconsin rivalry is still, still a, a big rivalry, along with the Marquette uh, and uh, Wisconsin rivalry as well. Um, but uh, I think we went up to we went up to Madison that year, and I think we lost. Yeah, we lost. Uh, I think it was a close game. We lost by nine, eight or nine, maybe. I was gonna say I think they made some, I think they made some free throws down the stretch to kind of push it out there, but it was a pretty good ball game. If I remember right, you said what? I said if I remember right, I think it was a pretty close ball game, and they made a few free throws down the stretch to push the lead out. Yeah, yeah, they. I think it was like an eight, an eight point game, maybe six, eight point game somewhere around there. And then we had them on the ropes my senior year, and uh, it's funny that we're talking about this because being on the bench with him this year, he it was certain situations he wouldn't call a timeout on, and I let some of the other coaches know why he don't call timeouts in late game situations. And we were uh, – my senior year, we had Wisconsin at home. It's a tie game. I got the ball at the top of the uh, – the ball out top, near half court, dribbling the clock down. And he calls a timeout, and I just give him this look like, why? <laughs> he, drew up, he drew up a play to get me the ball back in isolation at the top of the key again. And, um, I was already there. And Devin Harris shoots the gap on the inbound, takes it, and, and, and go lays it in for the win. He go lays it in for the win. And that Pearl <laughs> did not call a timeout when we were playing Notre Dame in the in in stands over in the Indianapolis late game situation. Yeah, we're definitely going to get to that game. I promise you that. We're definitely going to have that conversation. But I want to talk about the transition to Coach Pearl's system. Did, did Was it a difficult adjustment for you to go from a, a controlled, more half-court, defensive-oriented uh, pattern type of offense to a team that was going to extend the floor defensively, play at a, at a higher pace, spread the floor more, play with isolation. Was that a hard transition or one that you were, were excited about? Man, Coach Cook, we was licking our chops to get in that system, <laughs> to get a coach <laughs> we, had a bunch of, we had a bunch of guards that was fast, athletic. We had undersized fours and fives who could get up and down the floor. And Coach Pearl offense and style of play in the, the, that – that, so we called it 55, which was our full court press. Like we, that was just that was icing on the cake for my last two years. Man. It really was. And 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 you you excelled in the system. I mean, you you had a phenomenal last two years, an outstanding senior year, averaged over 18 a game. Um, and and I'd like to contrast your final college game to your final high school game. You said 0, 0 for 11 or 0 for 12, zero points losing the districts as a high school senior and, and, and feel like you kind of let your team down. And, and Clay, I got to tell you, I, I was glued to the TV in 2003 when you guys played Notre Dame. I, I, I've never rooted so hard for a team. I didn't know anything about it except one player in my life. I, I wanted you guys to win that game. Um, 
but you, you, you talked about it. You've, you've got the ball down one late in the game against Notre Dame. You're basically at the center of the floor, dribbling the clock out and waiting to make a play. Um, the way I remember the play is you, you, you made a dribble move, got to your right hand, got by your defender, and, and, and then when the big stepped up to help, you dumped the ball off to a teammate that was really in a great spot, and, and the shot didn't go in. Yeah, it was. I think I think when I crossed half court with the ball, I think it was probably about sixteen seconds, somewhere around fifteen, sixteen seconds left. But I'm just sitting there. I know I know exactly where I'm going, when I'm going, and how much time is on the clock. I know if the big guy steps up, I got I got the big to dump it down to. If he doesn't, I can get all the way to the basket. So I make the move. I get I get downhill, and Torian Francis, who had a monster game against us, uh, he stepped up. And I gave a wraparound pass to our big guy Dylan Page with probably what two seconds, three seconds on the clock, and he had a he had a point blank wide open layup and, and, and rolled off the front of the rim. You know, it was just one of those instances where you just think you got it in the bag and uh, it rolled off the front of the rim, and we didn't have it in the bag. So and and, was, and Clay, the the thing that stood out to me, I'm watching the game on TV, but I, I've I've remembered this for 17 years, is when that ball came out of the rim. You didn't really have a reaction. You didn't show any disgust. You didn't show any frustration. In fact, you kind of patted Dylan on the ass and started to go shake hands. Um, oh, yeah. I, I thought your I thought your leadership in that moment, even though it doesn't change the outcome or maybe doesn't uh, wouldn't be deemed as as really important. I thought your leadership in that moment was a great reflection of two things: one, the program you were a part of, and two, your maturity and what you'd gained during your college career. Oh. One thing for sure, two things for certain. That program, when I got there, was 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 in a position to where, you know, they were at some point, at some times, uh, coach, they were they were talking about going back to Division Two, and that was something that I didn't want to let happen, at least not on my watch. And uh, like I said, I I only came in with, with another freshman, Ronnie Jones. He was my best friend, still my best friend, one of my best friends. Uh, it was just me and him that came in in that class of '98, and we put it upon our shoulders. When uh when Bo when Bo left and took his job at Wisconsin, the pro came in. Me and Jones put it on our shoulders that this program is, is going nowhere but up from here. And uh, like you said, when that ball rolled off the front of the rim, I was in a, I was in shock a little bit. But at the end of the day, where where I left that program that that day, I was I was I was proud of the strides that I made as a as a college guard and 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 the, and the strides the program had made in, in finding finding good. Two good coaches to put the program in the right direction. Well, and, and I'm going to embarrass you a little bit here, and you just just let me do this because I don't do it very often. But <laughs> you, you 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 left Milwaukee uh, as the school's all-time leading scorer, nearly 1,800 points. Uh, you left Milwaukee as I I, I want to say maybe the top or top two or three or four rebounders. Uh, you led the pr- program in steals for your career. Um, you, you accomplished remarkable things. I mean, Clay, I have this discussion with people around Lima all the time because you, you, you grew up here. You know what it's like. People want to say, well, who's the best guy to ever play in Lima? And I say, well, that depends on what you want to argue. Who had the best career while they were here or who's the best player ever, ever to come out of here? Because I can name the Mr. Basketballs and, and I love them all. They're all great players, but not one of them is ever talked about as the greatest player in the history of his college program. 
<laughs> and you are you are easily debated and 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 likely still considered the best player that's ever played at the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee. Uh, again, I'm not trying to embarrass you. What I'm trying to say is, um, you know, when I think about that sophomore in high school that I coached against, and I think about that young man facing his graduation with no offers, and, and I realize what was accomplished in college. There's nothing about your pro career that should have been surprising. <laughs> I was, uh, like you said, uh, uh, end of my high school career really, really had me focused. Because I know I didn't want to taste that, 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 that taste of disgust, that taste of failure again. And so that drove me. That drove me and drove me. Like, I, I, I still got the, the newspaper clipping. Uh, the next day in the Lima News after we lost to Delta St. John's. I still have that newspaper clipping to this day. Wow. And I hung that and I hung that up. And I took that I took that everywhere with me, man. And people and people think that's like something out of a movie, but I really <laughs> took it everywhere with me. I hung it up in my locker at Wisconsin Milwaukee. And that that drove me the whole five years I was up there on that campus. Well, I, I think that's that's phenomenal. And and I just like I said, I, w- I was really proud of your career. Just to be able to say that I, I had any connection to, to what you became was something. But um, and, and, and I managed to to really just enjoy your career in a level that I, I, I didn't expect to for a guy that didn't coach you directly. You know, I'll never forget when Coach Jarvis was getting ready to leave Perry. Um, he said to me a couple things about the, the program that was there, but he, he had said at that time, you know, uh, Coach Minnick's probably going to get the job, and, and he said that'll be good. He said if, if for some reason that doesn't happen, he said, Coach Cook, you ought to think about applying here because he said this is a great place to coach. He said we've got a group of kids that'll that'll work hard for you. And uh, he said all you have to do is understand what they need. He said sometimes they need a foot in their ass, and sometimes they need you to buy them a pair of eyeglasses because they can't afford them. And, and and that statement to me that he said about that that program was was I thought was indicative of, of the type of young man that you became is is you took your opportunities you worked really hard but then as a leader I thought you gave your program what it needed whether it was a, a guy that was a defensive presence an offensive presence a, a leader I thought you supplied those things and so we're, we're gonna we're up against a, a break here so we're gonna take our break and when we come back I want to get into kind of the, the the mindset that you had coming out of a great senior year of college and talk about your pro journey Okay. All right, we'll take a quick break. So, Clay, we, we talked about the, the challenge of getting through high school and getting uh, ready to graduate without any offers. At the end of your senior year of college, there's a whole world of possibility and opportunity in front of you. How did you go about preparing for uh, were, were there combines? Were there invites to places? Were you a part of the draft process um, going into that 2003 summer? I know you weren't drafted, but were you a part of that process? Was it was it discussed as a possibility that you might be? Yes, I was. I was a part of. I was part of that draft process in 2003. Uh, I went. To, I went. Went to play at uh, Portsmouth, which is the first. Uh, which is the first invitational uh, combine camp, which is in uh, Portsmouth, Virginia. Uh, some uh, the majority of the top uh, the top college guys coming out, top college seniors coming out that uh, compete there against uh, other seniors. Um, some guys have the option to skip it and go to Chicago, which is a which is probably the best 
pre-draft combine. And uh, those those two things right there is what get people drafted. Uh, Jamar Butler went as well. And I think Jamar Butler got MVP of Portsmouth, which is unheard of. You know, a guy, a little guy, a young guy from Lima, Ohio like that, going to Ohio State, performing the way he did, and then going on to be MVP of Portsmouth, is, that's, that's, that's very remarkable on his end. But uh, I was a part of that process. Uh, I had, I think it was eight or nine uh, private workouts with several NBA teams. I had three with the Bulls. I had uh, one with Dallas. I had uh, two with Cleveland. I had one with the Hawks. I had one with the Pistons. And I think I had one. I have. Uh, I can't remember where. I can't remember where the last one. Uh, one in Orlando. I had one in Orlando. So those were the those were the teams that was part of my process coming out in 2003. And uh, Chicago had. Chicago had five second-round picks that year in 2003. And with me going back three times to Chicago, I really thought I had a chance of getting one of those second-round uh, second spots that they had in the, in the 2003 draft. But I think they ended up taking five, all five big men in the second round that year. Wow. Wow. So you get through that, and, and when you're undrafted, I, I assume that the phone starts ringing pretty quickly at the conclusion of the draft for undrafted guys that were that close. Oh yeah, yeah. The phone started started swinging pretty quickly, but it it goes back to, to to what me and you were just talking about as far as like that. There's nothing wrong with going to a smaller a smaller school to further your education. There's nothing wrong with going to Division three, a junior college, a Division two. There's nothing wrong with that. So with that same thought process, I had to think about there's nothing wrong with going to Europe if I don't make it to the NBA and providing for my family. And going to Europe, I was hesitant about it because that was something I had never done before. You know, a, a young a young black male from Lima, Ohio going to Europe, that's that's very unheard of. Certainly. So with that with that on the horizon, you know, I, I, I took that opportunity, Coach Cook, and when I got over there, I didn't look back, man. Well, you, you certainly didn't. And we, we lost touch for a lot of years, but uh, your, your journey – uh, whether it was in Europe or elsewhere overseas or, or playing back here in, 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 in lower level professional leagues in the United States. I, I got to tell you, you were in Utah, right? For for a year. Yeah, I was in Utah for a year. I was in, uh, I was in Arkansas, little, little rock Arkansas for two years in the development league, NBA development league. And then I went back to Europe and had a 14, 14 year, 15 year stint well, back I, in Europe. I don't remember the exact year, and I don't remember how it happened that it got on TV, but but when you were in Utah, I watched you three times that year on television, um, and, and I think you led the league in scoring. That was, is it called, at that time, that was the, the recreation of the, what, the ABA or whatever the, yeah. is what the league was, and, and I think you led the league in scoring that year, but that was your only year in that conference, because I actually read online earlier this week when I was trying to prepare a little bit for our, for our conversation that the ABA lasted several more years before it folded. You're, you're, you're the team you played for only, I'm, I'm sure they finished that full season. Um, no, we, uh, it was crazy because we had one of the, we had the best team in the league that year. I think we went 19, 18 and 0 or 19 and 0 before we lost our first game. And you, uh, 
when you when you when you were with that team, you guys were I don't know what twenty twenty something and two overall. Um, yeah, I think we, I think we finished twenty 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 five and two twenty six and two before we before we ran into financial troubles and our and our team folded. Right, and 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 so you you make it less than a full year. You guys probably would have played for the, the title or at least been in the playoffs certainly. Uh, that season comes to a close for you, and that league, you know, manages to survive for a handful more years. But when they named their all-decade team, you were on it. <laughs> yeah, that was, I didn't, I didn't know that until some, uh, somebody brought it up to me and asked me if I knew I was on the ABA's all-decade team, and I had no idea until they showed me the article online. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just a unique story. But what what's more unique, Clay, is is when you get into that that time frame of your life. Um, you know, there was a pretty consistent changeover. You, you you played one year, one place, one year the next, maybe two years a place, and then you moved on. And and I, I know most people know this who know you well, and and people who don't know you well won't know. It, but you, your degree from UWM was in finance, and I, I'm sure you had an agent. But what was it like for you, and how much involvement did you have in in and kind of de- determining your own contract at all those places. Um. Well, playing in the ABA and, and in the in the development league for two years, those uh those contracts are pretty are pretty standard and set forward. Uh, when I got to the when I got to the development league, they had A contracts, B contracts, and C contracts. And your A contracts was your players who were sent down from the from the NBA teams who still were who still had a chance to get called up. You know, throughout throughout the year, I mean, everybody had a chance to get called up. But your A contract guys were pretty much the guys who you know we know that were going to get the, the first call ups. Well, those guys were making like I think it was at that time, I think it was like twenty six, twenty seven thousand maybe. Hmm. The B the B contracts was getting like twenty twenty two, and the C guys, which I was, we were only getting like eighteen grand before taxes. For like six months, I think it was five or six months, and uh, that's just part of the grind, man. You know that that didn't that didn't uh, that didn't stop me from wanting to become better and wanting me, and it didn't stop me from wanting to become a professional a professional athlete. It just it just added more fuel to the fire. Well, and you went through that. You played a couple of different times in the NBA summer league. You were you were very much one of the guys that uh, I think wasn't an NBA player oftentimes not it wasn't about ability it was about roster makeup it was about timing it was about you know committed money to certain guys and 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 not to others and I think that's one thing that gets lost in in the professional world is people who are basketball fans say well he didn't make it as a pro player he must not have been good enough to play in the NBA and oftentimes it's not about whether you're good enough it's about Guy, teams have guaranteed money committed someplace so they can't afford to to spend money elsewhere or uh, an injury bug or injury might occur in, in preseason that takes a guy who would have definitely been in the plans and moves him away from that. So when you go through that process and end up basically settling into a really nice career in Europe, um, and again, some of our listeners may know this, you actually reached a point in your time in Europe when you couldn't afford to pursue the NBA any longer. You're right. Um, and a lot of people know this, not, not a lot of people know this story and I don't tell this story too often, but we were, um, I think my second year, my second year in the development league, I didn't have, I had one team that wanted me to play summer league with them, but I would have had to go to mini camp 
roster in order to try to make the summer league roster. And so I didn't do that. So I went over to Italy uh, and, and played. And I, I played. I played balls to the walls. I, I just, I just took it personal for every, for any and everybody that that tried to guard me or I, that I was guarding. And I come back from Italy, and I had nine, nine or ten NBA teams that want to be on their summer league rosters, and I didn't even have to do mini camp. So. For a lot of the guys that come under me, like Martise, uh, Kimbrough, and uh, Terrence Sullivan, guys like that, that's 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 on that journey already. Like, there's nothing wrong with Europe, and I give them this phrase that you're actually closer to the NBA in Europe than you are in the G League. And they look at me like I'm crazy. Like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And I give them that story. I give them that story right there. And they said, "Man, are you serious?" And I said, "Yeah, I, I, I'm not gonna lie to you. I've been down the road that's off in the head now." I want to see you guys do the, you know, go along that same line, and and not, and so you, so you'll be prepared for what comes your way. When, but, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. But uh, I think it was 2000 and 2012. I had a I had an offer from the Cleveland Cavaliers to join their uh, to join their uh, preseason their preseason roster. It was only for seventy. It was only for seventy grand, and that was before taxes. And I had to really sit down and take a hard look at this this, this situation because I had an offer in Europe that was a seven figure offer, and it was just it was something that where I had to really take a hard look at it because it was you know that type of money was was life changing, or take the chance at playing in the NBA, which is a dream. So. Uh, for for a lot less with knowing that how that how that game goes where if it's an hour or two before the, the the deadline they'll they'll release you so they don't have to pay you the whole contract and then pick you up right after the deadline and prorate you for the rest of the year. Yeah. So that was something that I really had to take into consideration. And after talking about a day's worth of thinking and just pondering, I, I chose to go back to Europe and I played for Real Madrid, which is one of the top ball clubs in Europe. And and I I, I was vaguely aware of that scenario. I didn't know the, the, the specific numbers, but I knew that you had some financial security possibility in, in Europe that you that weren't going to be here. And it was weighing that with uh, with obviously, I mean, a dream's a dream, and if you want to chase a dream, you chase a dream. But you you reach a point, and I, and and I'm hearing you say it that you reached a point where it, it's basketball and you love it, but it's it, the, the decision was a financial one and a lifestyle one and a and a, uh, a a lifetime decision, not not a decision for one year. And uh, again, I think young people would would benefit from hearing that. Um, at, at what point during your time in Europe? Oh, well, let me let me go this question first, just because I'm curious. With as much time as you spent in Europe, and now you've had some separation from it, can you name every stop? Oh yeah, I can name every stop, and if I can't, I can go for that path. Those two or three passports out and name them off. I'll be able to take it. But my first stop was uh, my first stop was uh, Sweden, Sundsvall, Sweden. Uh, that's probably one of the coldest places I've ever been in my life <laughs> outside of Milwaukee. Uh, the next stop was uh, next stop was Italy. Uh, then Russia, Moscow, then uh, Kiev, which is in the Ukraine, the capital of Ukraine. Then uh, I went from there on to Spain, to uh, Sevilla, Spain, then uh, Barcelona, 
which is in Spain, then Real Madrid, which is in Spain. Uh, my next journey from there was Italy, Rome, Italy. Uh, after that, I went to Valencia, which is back in Spain. And I went to Turkey for three years. I played two years in uh, Ankara, Turkey, which is the capital of Turkey. And I played one year in, uh, what was that, uh, Konya, Turkey, which is, which is the most religious city in Turkey. And then I went to play in Puerto Rico for a summer, which was unbelievable. Then uh, I played in, I think my, after Puerto Rico, I played in, ooh, I played in South America. Okay. So, and then, uh, and then I played in Lebanon as well. I remember that the, the Lebanon stop was the one I, I guess I, I was aware of more than the South America stop. I remember when you were in Lebanon. Uh, do, do you have an easily identifiable favorite place that you lived during that time? My favorite place was probably Rome, Italy. I'm a big, I'm a big, I'm a big historian. So being able to see the Colosseum. Being able to see all the churches and the Tower of Pisa and all that stuff, I was I was in heaven. Being able to to take tours of all those places, that's it's awesome, man. Now, now I got to ask this question: Was there any place on any of those stops that you went to and you just survived it, like you tolerated it for a year? Uh, that that was probably would have been my last stop in my last stop in Turkey, which was Konya, which was Konya, Turkey. Um, when I say it was the most religious city over there, like everyone's. You know, Turkey is, is, a, is, a Muslim, is a Muslim country, um, and uh, the women have to be covered up. But, like, it was like whenever, like, we would go out to the malls or go to restaurants and eat, like, everybody was covered up. You could see nothing but their eyes. So that was kind of scary. And at that time, they were doing a lot of, a lot of suicide bombing over there in Turkey with the younger generation clashing with the, with the, with the government. Oh wow! So, so, so being so that that last stop over there in Turkey it was probably one year where I was just like, just let me, just let me get by this year, and I'm and I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's a remarkable journey, and and what I want to ask you from a basketball perspective is, is there anything that stands out about the coaching that you received in any particular place, or the style of play that you were a part of in those different stops? Oh no, the coaching was pretty much the same. They might be a little more detailed over there uh, because, you know, there's their game is pretty much along the lines of, excuse me, their, their game is pretty much along the lines of the college game here with just a, with just a 24 second shot clock. Uh, they have a 24 second shot clock all the way down to grade school levels over there. Nice. So that's why those, that's why those kids over there are already at an advantage because they're playing at a professional pace in second, third, and fourth grade. That's and, it's yeah, interesting. We don't even have a shot clock in high school basketball over here. And the <laughs> shot clock we do have in college basketball, in my opinion, it needs to be pushed to 24 to prepare the guys for the next level. Yeah, I just uh, th that's a debate that could rage on, and and obviously th this this makes some people laugh. But you know, when I when I coached at eight to 20 years ago, and we we were lucky if we had a team that could compete. I would have screamed that I didn't want a shot clock because holding the ball a little bit was my only chance of competing. <laughs> but I will say this, as I've evolved, I don't know that I could settle on an exact number for how many seconds, but I'm ready for a shot clock in high school basketball because I think 
the coaching, particularly in Ohio, is really, really good already. If you add the shot clock, good coaches will become better coaches. And, and, and I believe that good players will either develop into better players or mediocre players will develop into good players or, or because that they're going to have to, I mean, you have to adapt. And, and again, I, I'm a believer in, in the idea that, that the shot clock is good for the game. Um, it, does it hurt some teams that might be really lesser talented, like the t- some of the teams I coached? Yes. But I don't think we should make rules for an entire sport based on the bottom 5 to 10%. I can, I can, agree, with, I can agree with you uh, along those lines. Uh, it definitely would, 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 make other, would make some players better, and it definitely would hurt some, some players and some teams. And like you, but I'm, I, I'm agreeing with you along the lines that, that you can't you can't punish everybody else for the sake of one or two or three of the bottom team. But uh, like guys like Luka Doncic and uh, guys like Porzingis, like those guys have been playing professionally for ever since the age of 14, 15 years old. So when those guys come over here, they're already ready. They're able to play at the professional space because that's what they become accustomed to since second or third grade. Well, that's the other thing, too, is you talk about how ingrained it is. Don Showalter is a is a, a part of USA Basketball. He's the director of coach development now for USA Basketball. And I recently recorded a podcast with Don. And uh, Don's statement was, you know, there's lots of ways to argue the point. But he said that the bottom line is, if you look at basketball from a worldwide perspective, we are in the dark ages. Uh, because it's not across the board. And he said in most other places, it is across the board at every level. There is a shot clock. And it may vary on, 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 on the, 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 the amount of time that you get, but everybody's got one. And, and again, I just think it makes the game uh, a, a little more, uh, it, there's a pace to it. Nobody's, nobody's able to hold the ball necessarily for a, a lengthy period of time. And, and I think making people play, I, you know, and God rest his soul, Vince Cozy used to say that, that he always wanted a shot clock and anybody that didn't want one, you know, he would argue with them like crazy. And, and there is a, at least one school of thought is that if we have a shot clock, we'll just take more bad shots. And, 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 and I would say, well, if you don't make your players get better, you will. You'll take a lot more bad shots. But if you know you've got a shot clock and you spend time investing in skill development and you develop your, your – X's and O's and your philosophy and your style of play with the understanding that you've got to adapt to that shot clock, your players will either get better at it or, or they'll, that's all there is. They have to get better or they stop playing. I totally agree. I agree with everything you said. I agree with uh, what, what the late great Vince Coza said. And I, it's just like you said, and I like the, like the, like the coach said, we're, we are in dark ages when it comes to basketball as, 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 a, as, a, as opposed to the rest of the world. Like, like, like the, the, the 24 second shot clock at a young age, uh, they have club teams over there. I know when I played for Real Madrid, we had our club program went all the way down to like the eight and nine year olds. We had like four or five teams with eight and nine year olds. They used to practice before us, and I watched Don just—I watched him become who he is. I watched Nikola Mitrovic become who he was. We I played with those guys. I knew. Wow. I knew Perzigas was going to be as good as he was. And when the Knicks drafted him, everybody was like, who is this kid? I told a lot of people, like, that kid is going to be great. Just, just, give, him, just, give, him a, just give him time. And it, you know, we could we could spend a long time talking about what goes on in Europe, and I could get into the basketball part of it forever, and we don't really have necessarily the time for that. So I'll, uh, I'll kind of move our conversation in a different direction, if you don't mind. 
Okay, so what I guess I want to get into now is when you, when you reached the end of your uh, playing career in Europe, you, you, you came back to Lima for a while. Uh, you know, my, my buddy Matt Childers used to say he would have put the Lima senior coaching staff uh, up against any other coaching staff in the state if they wanted to play four-on-four four or five-on-five five, uh, with, with the guys that were around here and, 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 and were helping Quincy or at least a part of the program. But what I'd like to spend some time on really before we wrap up the podcast is uh, maybe not a lot of people in Lima know that this last year you started your coaching career in a, in a full-time professional sort of capacity. Yeah, I, um, I, like you said, I, I've been back in Lima since I retired. And um, I, I had the opportunity and a chance to, to coach with uh, Greg Simpson on the freshman team over at Lima Senior and also help out with the, with the JV with Corey Wilson and also the varsity with uh, Quincy Simpson himself. And, uh, you know, seeing those kids and teaching those kids and them being as receptive as they were, that that I knew I wanted to be a coach, but that right there, that that fueled the fire to want to coach quick, like to get into coaching quicker. I didn't know if I wanted to do it right away. I knew I wanted to take a couple of years or maybe a year or two off to, to be away from basketball. But teaching the kids and being around those kids on a daily basis and them being receptive and, and respectful as they were, just it just made me want to get into it even quicker. And so I reached out to uh, I reached out to Coach Pearl when uh, Auburn was making a run in the SEC tournament and uh, you know congratulated him uh, on beating uh, I think they beat Tennessee it was uh, one of his former schools and uh, they beat uh, I think they beat Kentucky for the third time that year. And I can to win it to win the SEC tournament. I congratulate him again, and you know, he, he reached out, he reached back, called me, asked me what I was doing. I told him I was coaching high school, and he asked me if that's what I really wanted to do. And I told him, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to give back, you know, to these kids what the game gave to me, and that was the opportunity. And uh, he said, well, if you're serious, then come down to you know come down to Auburn the first week of June, and we'll go from there. So as time went by, you know, Auburn made their run to the final four. I reached out to him again, and you know, he left. He left me two tickets. Me and uh, another guy from uh, that I played college ball with uh, drove up, and uh, we had the chance, the opportunity to watch the you know front and center, you know, be at the final four and watch Auburn lose a heartbreaker to Virginia. And uh, I got down to campus uh, the first week of June, and you know, stayed at his house for for a few days and talked, walked around on campus, you know, things like that, and. You are you are a graduate assistant with the Auburn Tigers uh, on Coach Pearl's staff. And uh, it is, I would say, a little bit non-traditional uh, to play a lengthy career in, in professional basketball like you did and, and then take a graduate assistantship. But it is it is oftentimes the first step uh, into a, a career in, in college coaching. It's hard to say, and nobody knows anything right now with the way COVID-19 has hit the country and what's going to happen and not going to happen, I guess, is a complete uncertainty. But do you have a do you have a kind of a goal for yourself over the next three to five years, uh, a, a plan in place uh, that you'd like to try to pursue? What do you, what do you see developing for you in, in the coaching field? Oh, yeah. One, 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 one thing he, he asked me before before he offered me that position was, are you ready to be back at the bottom of the total pole like you know, when you first started out playing? And I asked him, why do you say that? He was like, because being back at the top, at the bottom of the total pole after so many years of being at the top, he was like, that's going to be a tough transition for you. Are you able to Are you able to do that? And I said, I was at the bottom before. I ain't got no problem being at the bottom again. 
you know, over the next, you know, the next few years, you know, the goal is, uh, the, the ultimate goal is to be a, a head coach. I don't care if it's at a Division three school, Division two school, Division one school. The ultimate goal, end goal is to, you know, is to be a head coach and, and create a legacy in that lane. And, um, and that's, and that's the, over the next few years, I know I got to work my way up, continue to work my way up as, as, you know, as time goes on. But I would like to see myself, you know, next three to five years, in a position to, to, to possibly be a head coach somewhere. What did you experience as a GA that you would say maybe was surprising to you or maybe that you didn't expect? Uh, the way they traveled. And they travel like they travel like professional teams. Like, like, like pros, teams. yeah. Yeah, it's this. Like we were in we we fly private. We uh we fly our we fly at our own little airport, we got private jets and it's just that's <laughs> Probably was the main thing that was the eye opener to me. And uh, I, I ask players who become coaches this question a lot. You don't get to be a great player without really working hard. But talk about the difference between working hard as a player and working hard as a coach. Working hard as a player is a lot easier than working hard as a coach. <laughs> it's just a lot easier. Uh, coaching, like I would, I would get up at my daily routine was uh, nine o'clock. Wake up at the offices by ten. Uh, I'm I'm at the office from ten in the morning to at least. And sometimes, Coach Cook, I was there till ten at night. You know, you got guys coming in throughout the day, getting individual workouts in, uh, breaking down film of the teams that we have to play. You know, we have we have five or six coaches on our staff, and each coach is assigned to different teams. So one coach might have eight teams, two coaches might have 12 teams, and you guys, you know, you have to sit there, you have to break down films over the last 10 games. Coach Pearl is so detailed, he goes back to 10 years ago sometimes. <laughs> and it's just like, man, are you serious? But, you know, some of the discussions, some of the debates that we had in our, in our war, what we call our war room, it, they, they, they got intense at times, you know, and it was time to play uh, Kentucky. Uh, when it was time to play Tennessee, when it was time to time to play big games that we know were going to be on TV and things like that, like our discussions would sometimes be heated discussions on what the strategy was going to be on defense when one guy has a ball as opposed to another guy, uh, what type of defense we were going to run on out-of-bounds plays when we were on defense, how we were going to guard it, if we were going to pre-switch so when guys come together, we can switch back and be on our own man. It was just so detailed. And at times, he did, and I love that. Uh, I, I, to me, it's what, what, it's the reason I can't get completely away from coaching. I, that, that, that stuff is what I feed on. And I, I got a question. The high school coaches that listen to our podcast, and there are a few that do. They've got huddle, and that's that's that kind of their film situation. How great is synergy? Synergy is unreal. It's I the never best. Synergy existed until I got down to Auburn. It's the best, man. <laughs> I did. Time, I, actually, I actually put my name in Synergy and, and went back some years, and they have game film of of me from 2000, and I think goes all the way back to 2006, maybe 2007. Oh man, I I spent three years. Time, I was I would pull it up with some of the guys on the team or whatnot. I spent three years helping the the women's program at Northern and the, and the men's program for a year, and. And, of course, I have a full-time job, and I'm lucky to have a job that compensates me well. But I, I could have resigned my job at times and just gone to Northern and said, put me in the film room. I'll get this done. <laughs> uh, 
it's unbelievable the, the the technology that's out here today. It's great stuff, and you know, I, I you know I probably need to let you go. There's there's a few more things I'd like to ask you about. The the last time you and I spoke face to face, you you probably may not remember this. Last time we spoke face to face was 2018, and actually. Uh, my wife was in the hospital. We had just delivered our twin daughters and my son was playing in a, in an AYBT event at Lima senior. So uh, the day after the girls were born, I took about two hours to get out of the hospital and come and coach a game. And you were standing down at the end of the Lima senior gym with your shoulder against the wall, kind of watching my team get destroyed. And, and I decided it would be more fun to talk to you than to watch those guys play for that last seven or eight minutes. And, uh, but when we got to speak, I, and I had talked to you before we started recording as well, I haven't really gotten to express to you other than in a text message how sorry I am that you had to experience the loss of your brother. Um, I think that probably impacted your plans for your, your career. Um, but I just want to I want to publicly say that I'm sorry you had to experience that. And I'm really happy for you that uh, out the other side of that, this part of your journey is beginning because it sounds exciting. Oh yeah, you know, I I I take I'll take that. Uh, 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 I really appreciate it. Uh, like like we talked before the, before the podcast, uh, losing someone, losing a loved one, you know, someone as as dear and as close as me and him was, you know, um, you know, sudden and tragic is is a lot tougher than it is when you when you can see it coming. But but losing a loved one is always going to be tough. Uh, you know, before he before he passed, you know, a few months, like about a month before he passed, I think it was, we had a conversation. Um, we had a conversation over a few beers, and uh, he was like, "Man, you know, you should you should reach out to Coach Pearl and and, and think about going going to work with him." And I, I I didn't give it two thoughts prior to that until he said it. And when he said it is when I reached out to Coach Pearl, and and that's that's what that's why I got the ball rolling. At. So kudos to him for for putting that in my ear. And I, I know he's up there smiling down and, and being proud of the, of the things that's happened for me. Well, I, I I can appreciate that, and I also know that as you've proven time and time again, just give you an opportunity, and something special is probably going to happen. So I'm going to, from a distance, watch and anticipate and look forward to what develops in your career. Uh, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your willingness to do the podcast. It was an absolute blast. Uh, I know you're in Lima now, and I know you're, you know, you're in Lima in the off seasons when you can be. Uh, one of these times, we need to have lunch or dinner, and, and and a coke and a steak, or a beer and a steak, or whatever. We need to get together. But uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you go, and 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 just try to wrap up, enjoy the rest of your summer, and I'll keep my fingers crossed that you guys get a chance to have something resembling a season this year, man. Coach, it was a pleasure. I really appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Thanks so much for listening again today. If you would like to listen to previous or future episodes of the Talking Hoops with Coach John Cook podcast, you can listen on Spotify or Google Podcasts as well as several other podcast platforms. Please review, rate, and subscribe. And if you would like to support the podcast financially, you can do so at anchor.fm backslash john-cook. That's J-O-N-C-O-O-K-0. Anchor.fm backslash John-Cook0. Thanks again. Hope to talk hoops with you again real soon.